Let me get started. I'm Greg England. Uh, I preached in Churches of Christ for a little over 30 years. And um, I was also a part-time funeral director in Long Beach, California. And my son and I were. And he met a girl over in Temecula, California. It's about, what, 140, 150 miles from here. And um, he had an opportunity to buy the land and the building for the mortuary he was working for. And um, he called and asked if my wife and I wanted to come over and go to work with him. Uh, she was a school teacher, and we did. Fourteen years ago, we moved to Temecula, a place that almost a year earlier, I was visiting a friend over there who was having a house built, and they said, you ought to just come over here and live. And I said, this is the last place in the world I'd want to live. It's, you're in the desert. It's hot over here. And now we literally are about a quarter of a mile from them, walking distance from their house. Um, but being in the funeral business has been an, an, an incredibly exciting and interesting and fulfilling ministry. And we, we run our mortuary as a ministry, all of our... Uh, investors are Christian people, board of directors are all Christians, and we are not a merchandise-based funeral home. We're not out to try to... I was in the corporate <clears throat> funeral homes. They actually teach you a script to get people to the next spending level, and we don't treat families that way. Uh, so that's a little bit about my background. Um, and I'm just deeply honored that you're here today. Some of you I know, a lot a lot of you are here today that I don't know and I can't tell you how much that makes me, how good that makes me feel that that uh, you're here. Even the ones I know, I'm so grateful you're here. <laughs> but, uh, so today I want to completely abuse a passage of scripture and then tell you a couple of stories. It was going to be about three survivors, but I didn't get permission or at the last minute the family decided they didn't really want their father's story told here so it's actually going to be two survivors but um, I want to start in Philippians Paul's Paul's life is on a trajectory and he's to use a last century phrase he's very upwardly mobile in the Jewish community and in Philippians chapter 3 uh, there's a situation there of uh, bragging about who I am because of who I am. And um, Paul says, you know, if anybody has any right to brag, I've got a right to brag. Uh, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm a pure-blooded Jew. I'm, of, uh, I'm an aristocratic uh, person of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, I've dedicated my life to keeping the law perfectly. I'm a Pharisee. As to being zealous, uh, I persecuted the church, and he was proud of that. And as to the law, faultless. And so at the apex of his accomplishments was the persecution and the death of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. That's Paul's life. And then he has this encounter with Jesus and the trajectory of his life is not only altered, it's completely shattered. And all of his impressive accomplishments and, uh, were just considered worthless. And I remember, uh, some of you guys are truly scholars, I 
I started at Hardy Graduate School, had a daughter born and had to quit before I finished my degree there. Uh, but I remember taking the Greek class there under Dr. Osborne. And um, over the years, I've shared with first-year Greek students that Paul used the Greek S word there. All of my accomplishments are dumb. Skabah. And they just love the fact that they've learned a cuss word in Greek. Uh, can't wait to tell their friends. But Paul says, all of this stuff I've done, it's crap. It's dumb. And I forget all of that, verse 13, choosing instead to look forward to what is ahead because all that matters in this life is Christ. And so he puts it in these words, forgetting what lies behind, I press onward to the high calling of Christ. Now there are huge holes in this analogy and if you can look beyond that I want to share a couple of stories today because Paul didn't forget what had happened he didn't forget what he had accomplished if he had forgotten it he wouldn't have told us he wouldn't have just written it down but he moved beyond that to a life centered on Christ and I want to share with you two families that just touched my life deeply as a funeral director the first was Bernie Karen, C-A-R-O-N, um, Carone. I met his wife, uh, Julie, about seven years ago, just over seven years ago. She came to our funeral home to plan his funeral. And I had been in the back room where the cooler is, and I had seen this. At that time, we were going out and picking up all of our families. We didn't have removal services. Uh, as we've grown, we can't do that anymore. But... I remember we brought Bernie into our care and we were transferring him from the gurney into our cooler uh, on his arm, 173752. I thought, I've got a Holocaust survivor here. And um, I met with his wife and here's his story. He was born in Paris, France in February of 1927 on Rue de Dia. Street of God, if I said that right. If you're a French major, you can certainly correct me on that. Yeah. And within six years of his birth, uh, Hitler would begin making waves all across Europe. <coughs> and uh, he was the third of 13 births and 10 children that survived births, children of Maurice and Rachel. Maurice was a cobbler, self-employed shoemaker. And eventually, not only was he making shoes for just his family, he began, um, he started building a, a shoe factory to supply the materials that he needed and uh, eventually opened a shoe store in Paris. And then as his factory grew, he was supplying other retail stores. So he was a very successful Jewish businessman in Paris. Rachel never worked outside the home because uh, for 13 years, every 18 to 24 months, she was having a baby. And he remembered her mom, his mom as being an, an completely devoted to her children and to her husband. He graduated high school in June of 1940, and two days after he graduated high school, the German army marched into Paris. And what was left of the, of the uh, French army did what they do the best, they ran. And they traded their weapons for bottles of wine. And uh, 
He said initially the Germans were very kind, very polite to everyone. Nothing really changed. And so maybe all these stories we had heard about the Nazis and the Germans and Hitler, maybe all of that was just unfounded rumors. And then the Jews were required to um, register at the local police department. And in time, uh, they were having to wear the banners and the children had to wear the yellow star of David on their uh, outfits. And uh, it became a criminal act to have any business dealings with a Jewish business or a Jewish person. And they lived in perpetual fear. And on July 16, 1942, Bernie's father, his 18-year-old sister, his 17-year-old brother were arrested and uh, they were shipped out. And by the end of the following day, 13,000 Jews in that city had been arrested and shipped out of Paris. And he never saw his father, never saw his older sister or brother again. He ran to South France and was hiding out on the move for the next year and a half. He was alone, he was hungry, he was broke, he was scared. And his mother and his um, little sister and brother happened to find him, which became a complication for him because now not only is he looking out for himself, he's got his mother and his two younger siblings to look out for. And in doing that, the Germans actually caught up with him, found them in an apartment building, arrested them, and it was a freezing Sunday morning, and they were the 1,000th convoy to be shipped out of Paris by rail car to Auschwitz. For three days, they were packed in this rail car, 60 people to a car. There was no room to do anything but just stand. Um, there was no food, no water. There was no escape from the bitter cold. There were no bathroom facilities. The stench, the filth, the misery was unfathomable. They arrived in Auschwitz after three days on the rail. They waited in Auschwitz for two hours before the freight cars were open, <clears throat> and they walked out to the German guards and the barking German shepherds and the shouts of forming two lines. So he says he and his, um, he joined 250 other men. Uh, they went to the left, he watched his, mo uh, he watched his mother and his sisters go off to the right. He never saw them again. They immediately went into the gas chambers and were exterminated. He said, by then I was so callous, I didn't even shed a tear. First meal he had, and I'm going into a lot of detail on all this because I want you to understand what he forgot to press forward with life. First meal he had in over a week was molded bread and rancid soup neither fit for human consumption. Uh, he was hauling 50-pound rocks. They had no coats, no gloves, uh, flimsy, thin pajamas. It was sometimes 30 degrees below zero temperatures. And he said for the first time in his life, he wished he were dead. Taking a break, getting a drink of water, a fire to get warm, using a bathroom, all of that was strictly forbidden. Daily beatings were so severe that sometimes he could not sit down for weeks. He said, I was reduced to an animal simply trying to survive. And needless to say, he lost all faith in God. Absolutely lost all faith in God. In August of 44, things began to change. Bombs began falling around the area. The railroads were kind of decimated. The buildings were destroyed. 
uh, the crematories went cold and food supply trucks could not come into <clears> the camps. But the work never slowed down. Never slowed down. Prisoners were beaten so severely that uh, because they were unable to keep up with the workload and hangings became commonplace, infection set in, uh, was rampant throughout the camp. Uh, on January 18th of 1945, the Russian army was just about eight miles away. The camp was abandoned by 5 p.m. that day. They were forced to march in knee-deep snow at times 40 degrees below zero and if you stop for any reason, you were shot. And he said 30,000 people died in that march. 30,000 people. The next day, those that were still alive entered Glivitz, a camp designed for 2,000 people. They now had 60,000 people in that camp. On January 20th of that year, the, the German soldiers <coughs> surrounded the barracks with machine guns and just started firing. By the end of it, 50,000 people were dead in that mass execution. Those that remained alive were sent by rail car to Buchenwald. And he said, as we passed through Czechoslovakia, the people, the citizens would throw food into the cars and it would create just mass panic. And he said, I watched a father kill his son over a scrap of food and I watched a father and a son fight each other so bitterly over a piece of food that they both died. In Buchenwald, 1,800 prisoners were placed in a barracks designed for 200 prisoners. They had not eaten in eight days. Again, they were given moldy bread and dirty, soupy water. He said, I remember I was talking with a man who had, he was a Frenchman, he had a wife and two children, and he was talking to me with great hope about going home to be with his family and he said, mid-sentence, he fell over dead. Never seen anything like it, he said. <clears throat> he turned 18 years old in Buchenwald, and then it was in Holson that a group of 40 men were formed, and they had to march six miles up, in, up, up a mountain into the woods. They cut trees down, cut huge logs. He said, it was a job for 12 men to haul those logs down the mountain six miles and he said there were three men to a log and there should have been 12 and if for any reason you stopped uh, you were just beaten or shot and killed but I want to tell you this is what he wrote during that time he said someone of obscure now here's a little seed of faith he said someone of obscure identity had to be watching over me almost a reflexive thought there was simply an innate sense that this was true despite my professed beliefs that God didn't exist. Suicide was attractive. When possible torture by the SS troops was pending, I wanted to commit suicide, but something continued to motivate me, feeding me with thoughts of better days to come. He was given a new job. It was a two-hour walk from the camp to an underground facility where they were digging miles and miles and miles of trenches to lay cable. And he said, after a couple of weeks of that work, I just simply gave out. I could not move. And he said, I was kicked into unconsciousness. I was beaten so severely with the butt of a rifle that the stock of the rifle broke. 
the guard kicked me in the groin and left me to die. Of course, obviously didn't die. Uh, in May of 1945, the American Army was advancing into that area. The SS were in a state of shock. So he's transferred to Bergen-Belsen, which is probably one of the worst of all the concentration camps. Uh, he said, when we got there, the camp was literally littered with the bodies of dead inmates, and our job was to take those bodies out and bury them. But the grave was two and a half miles outside of the camp. And our task for weeks and weeks was to, any way we could, drag a body out and throw it in the grave. And he said, we were too weak to carry them, so we, anything we could find to tie around that body and drag it out. Uh, is how we managed to do that. There's a lot more to tell about his experience. Eventually he was liberated. He was able to, to find uh, his surviving family. He eventually came to the United States because an aunt of his uh, sponsored him, but he found out when he got to the United States, the only reason she sponsored him was so he could become her slave. So he had nothing to do with her. In time he did very well. He went into the insurance business, traveled the world, he married, he had children, he divorced, he remarried, and on Saturday, September 2nd, 1978, he writes this, Messiah appeared to me in a vision. I was in shock. I spoke to him. I verbalized exactly how I felt about believing in God. I told him I thought, if there was a God, he sure let us down by allowing my family members to be executed by the Nazis, subjecting me to tortures, beatings, starvation. God orphaned my brothers and sisters. Six million Jews perished in the war along with countless others. How could anyone believe in a God? And I kept telling this Messiah in this vision, I kept telling him off, declaring, I don't want any part of you but he stood there listening. And I poured my heart out, and he looked at me with a love that enraptured my soul, and it was incomprehensible. Wow. Bernie gave his life to Jesus. The rest of his life, he told as many people as he could about his conversion to Jesus and about the freedom that he enjoyed and felt and the love and forgiveness that he found in being a Messianic Jew, a follower of Jesus Christ. One of the more frustrating aspects of his walk, and we've been talking about this this week, uh, one of the most frustrating aspects of his walk was just the racial divide in the churches. He said even in the Messianic churches, there was an anti-Semitic <clears throat> attitude that I couldn't believe. And the church splits and the politics. And they struggled and struggled and struggled to find a church that would embrace just Jesus and just let's be a community of faith in him. He never found that church. And we're talking about in the Temecula Murrieta area where it's a high, high, high percentage of Christians and numerous mega churches over there. And in all of that, he struggled. He died at the age of 85, a year before his death. He wrote, 
I am now 84 years old and not in good health. My days are uncertain. So I have to answer a final question that I've been asked to think about over the years, and that is, for what are you most grateful? And he said, I'd have to say two things. Number one, only by the grace of the Almighty God did I survive the camps. And number two, by the grace of the Almighty God, I found my brothers and sisters in the same village that they had been hiding in since the war began. That's Bernie's story. George's story touched me even more than Bernie's. George's wife, Sophia, came to our mortuary in November of 2008 to plan her husband's funeral. In the course of our time together, she shared his story. And then a couple of months ago, I contacted Peter and Lillian, George's son and daughter. And we sat down again at our, at our facility. And uh, I said, I just need you. I remember George's story, but refresh my memory. Because I'm talking about him out at Pepperdine in May. And they were thrilled that you would hear George's story. Cool. He was born in Russia in 1927. His name was George Altachal. Um, he had three siblings. Two of them died uh, along with their mother during the Russian Revolution. Uh, it was because of a famine that had been politically instigated for Lenin's purpose. His father was a fighter in the Russian Revolutionary Army on the side of Lenin. And once he realized that he was on the wrong side, um, he changed sides and he became a, an enemy to Lenin. And of course, um, he was on the run from Lenin. After the Battle of Stalingrad, George began a journey on foot toward Poland and he literally walked across Russia on foot. Well, I guess he walked, he was on foot, but he walked across Russia in the winter with two horses. And every time he came to a border crossing, there would be a shorter route to his destination. He found the border crossings closed, and eventually he was captured by the Germans and taken to Auschwitz. <coughs> He said, I was not as upset about being in Auschwitz as I was that the Germans took my horses because I love those two horses. <laughs> said there were many nationalities, not just Jews in the labor camps. And he was in prison with the other Russians. He never did have the tattoo put on because he was not Jewish. But his job was to make bricks to replace the damage to buildings uh, because of the bombings. And I'll come back to those bricks in just a moment. So for 18 months, he worked in the factories building bricks. And again, just like in Bernie's story, if you weren't able to do the work, you were killed. Uh, you were of no use to the Germans and very quickly exterminated. George knew nothing about Christ. He knew nothing about Christianity. But he had a dream one night in Auschwitz. And he dreamed that everyone was lined up. Now, that was common in Auschwitz. Get up in the morning, you line up. But he said, this time we were lined up and there was a figure walking down the line and he had a book in his hand. And on some pages of the book there was, there was writing and on other pages of the book there were blank. And as people looked at the book, if they looked at the blank page, they became in total despair. 
that there was writing on the page, they seemed to be okay, and he said, I had no idea what that book was about. I just remember people shouting, he's coming, he's coming. He got very curious about what that was all about. And because he was working in a factory, he was actually allowed to leave Auschwitz to go to work during the day and come back at night. And he met a woman in the, in the village nearby that had a Bible stashed in her attic, hidden away, because it was unlawful to have a Bible. And she allowed him to, to borrow the Bible, and he began reading, and he says, I began in Genesis, and I really got all confused about all the begatting going on, is his words. <laughs> so he went to Revelation, which of course is the easiest book in the Bible to understand. <laughs> But he learned enough that he got to thinking that that figure in the vision must have been the Jesus of Revelation and the book must have been the book of life. So he gave his life to the Lord. And he absolutely loved telling people about Jesus. He even held devotionals in Auschwitz against the possibility of immediate death for doing that. And he was as comfortable telling one person about Jesus as he was telling a thousand. But this is something that his son told me that just stuck with me. Auschwitz didn't shake my father's faith. It galvanized it. Isn't that amazing? George became very, very sick during his time at Auschwitz. And... Uh, some of his friends hid him in the bricks. They would bring the bricks from the factory and just pile them in the camp. And they hid him in the pile of bricks. And a Ukrainian guard found him, discovered him in the bricks. Normally, he would have been just immediately shot. But this guard had some compassion on him. And he began bringing George some food. And he kind of nursed him back to help. <coughs> Eventually... When George made it to the United States, this guard made it to the United States, lived in Philadelphia, and they became very good friends. Just another way George said, God was looking after me during that time. While he was in Auschwitz, George was a very brilliant man, intellectually. And while he was in Auschwitz, he learned enough Polish words, and he learned enough about the geography because he was able to work outside the camp uh, that when the draw war was drawing to a close, um, his father and his grandfather, the German rebels, I mean the Russian rebels, they figured out a way to get their IDs changed from Russian citizens to Polish citizens. And then they were brought in for the interview. And George, having learned enough Polish, convinced the uh, German interrogator uh, that he indeed was Polish, not German. And he turned to the Russian ambassador there and convinced him these guys are not Russian because they were finding the Russian exp ex uh, expatriates and bringing them back to Russia to kill them. And so he avoided that. Came to America, he worked as a machinist. His heart and his love was preaching the gospel. Tried to go to college to become a preacher, go to seminary, but he, he just couldn't raise a family and, do, and be in college, so he worked as a machinist. Actually had a number of things patented, 
that he had figured out how to do in that work. Um, he decided I, he wanted to go back to Russia and tell the people there about Christ. And his son, Peter, whom I met during the funeral of George and later this last year, Sophia, George's wife, uh, Peter was 13 years old and he went with George back to Russia. And he says, as you would expect, my dad, he tried to smuggle Bibles into Russia and he got caught. And so he said, we were immediately taken to the KGB building. Dad was taken into a room and for two and a half hours was interrogated. I was sitting out in this other room by myself, not knowing if I would ever see my dad again. He said, about two and a half hours later, Dad comes out talking with this KGB officer as if they were the best of friends and even gave him a Bible saying, you're not going to let me have them, so you might as well keep one for yourself. And uh, the KGB agent told him that you would not be allowed to stay in Russia and you're being sent back to the United States. And Peter says, my dad looked at the agent and he said, that's my son sitting right there. Are you going to tell... Do you want my son to go back and tell the people of the United States that they were not allowed to visit their family in Russia? And so the man changed the orders, allowed them to remain, but warned them, you will be watched. And he said, in one city we were standing in line, this is weeks later, he said, we were standing in line to buy an ice cream cone, and George bought three ice cream cones. And he told the guy selling the ice cream cones, he says, give the third one to the fourth man in line. He was a KBG agent. He was shadowing them. And George knew that he was being followed. And they said at one time they were going to take a train ride somewhere. They were looking for a church in which he could preach. He had no idea where the church would be. But he said we were at the train station and he knew something wasn't quite right. And so they left the train station and they just started walking. And he said, ultimately, we found this small secret church down in this back alley in this city in Russia. And my dad was preaching to these people in this church. And he said, the young people, I was like a rock star to them. And he said, this was just an amazing time for my dad and for me. And so they had thrown the KGB off in that way. They took a different route back, finally got back to their hotel, and later learned that the train station had a number of KBG officers or uh, agents there uh, awaiting to arrest him. And he said, only God could have arranged that kind of thing so that I escaped arrest twice in one day. Um, he loved preaching. He loved starting churches here in Arizona and in California. He preached regularly on Russian TV programs. The interesting thing, when he died, the family said, we have a VHS tape of my dad preaching. We want to show that at the funeral. Oh. You got a what? A VHS tape. <laughs> now, my brother Bruce, and I've loved Bruce for 30 years, do you still have the eight-track tape players? Two of them. <laughs> I just happen to have a VHS tape player. I had started to throw that thing out, I don't know how many times, because uh, I did not own a VHS tape. And, well, I did. I had one Three Stooges movie. Um, but um, I just happened to have that thing. So I bought it and we put it into our system. 
and George Altachaw preached his own funeral sermon on VHS tape at our funeral home that day. Um, here's a man that literally walked across Russia, leaving Stalingrad in the bitter winter, found himself enslaved in Auschwitz for 18 months, came to know the Lord, and eventually came to our funeral home for burial. And he and his family and his wife deeply touched my heart. The third man, I won't tell you his name or anything, but what stood out about him was his family had him cremated. And I thought, it sure is odd to have a survivor of Auschwitz cremated, but he did. Uh, and they don't want his story told. To my knowledge, he wasn't a man of faith. He never believed in Christ. So I wondered, how do, you, how do I finish this session together? And I'm going to finish it quickly. Uh, but a few weeks ago, one of the elders at our church is uh, he's a psychologist, uh, Dr. Bob Tucker. He has an office in Newport Beach, California. And his wife, Dr. Stephanie Tucker, runs an addiction treatment center in Huntington Beach. And she's written books on, uh, alcohol, on uh, drug addiction and codependency and uh, how we enable people. And that's her life work, helping drugs, uh, people overcome drug addiction. So she taught, a, uh, she actually spoke one Sunday morning a few weeks ago at our church. We are in a series on relationships. And um, so she was going to talk about addictive relationships because she had been engaged to a man long before she became an expert in this field. She became engaged to a very abusive man that she thought, maybe I can just change him if I'm good enough religiously. If he sees my devotion to Christ, I can change him. She said she, she grew up a preacher's kid. She said, I was the definition of the super Christian. I was involved in every activity in our church, um, so much so that I completely burned out, but I kept playing the role, but I was emotionally fried. And she said, long story short, the only thing that ever changed my life was not church, was not ministry, was not programs, was not counseling. Very much like Bernie and George, she had an encounter with the Spirit of God. And she said, when I realized that the Spirit of God truly would live within me, it changed my life forever. And she says, even in my, her counseling practice, we, we can't push that on people, but our ultimate objective is to get them to realize there is help in Christ. Mm -hmm. And it's the only help that will turn your life around. And what changed the hearts of George Altachal and Bernie Carone was nothing less than an encounter with the Spirit of the living God. And nothing less than that will change our hearts or revive our churches or heal the broken vessels. So thank you for letting me share their stories. I have looked for years for an opportunity to share that because those two men 
to this day continue to touch my lives with what they were able to forget the past and press forward in Christ, and they did. And uh, Peter and Lillian concerning George said, only in eternity will we know just how many lives my dad and my mom touched for the Lord. But it was thousands. Praise God. So, well, thank you for being here today. I certainly appreciate you.